You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Give Us a King was the name of our last sermon series, where we went through pieces of Israel's past desires to have a king, a leader, a savior even, who would finally deliver the Israelites from wandering, from oppression, from identity crisis, from being fractured. And we saw Israel put hope in a warrior king who would be powerful and valiant and a defender, a liberator. And we saw two men fail at that task. Saul and David each fell incredibly and discouragingly short in their own ways of being the king who Israel wanted or needed. As things continue to get worse for Israel, we almost hear them go from, give us a king to, hello, are you there? Are you going to give us a king? More desperate, more despair for almost a thousand years. Israel is fractured in half and then some. Conquerors rose and fell just to give way to new conquerors, new oppression, to a very old and tired and increasingly hopeless people, a kingdom of people with no true king. Prophecies about the Messiah came and seemingly went through the years. Prophets rose up and died, and God seemed to be quiet for hundreds of years. And a remnant remained, a remnant still faithful to the Lord God, still devoted to relationship with Him, still looking, watching, waiting expectantly for God's promises of salvation and deliverance and hope to come to life. So when a Jewish baby was born outside in the dirt of a tiny nothing town to poor, seemingly disreputable parents under a very bright and unusual star, only a very tiny remnant of people would recognize him. Only a very tiny remnant of people would see and hear when God declared, Behold your king. O come all who are faithful, who are joyful and triumphant. Come to Bethlehem. Come and behold your king. Born the king of angels. Come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Today and next week, we're going to be celebrating Advent, which is the expectant waiting of the king to come, both in remembrance of that first time and in anticipation of his second coming. And we're going to look at a few testimonies of people who recognized and responded to the king, to the coming of the one true king who beheld the king. This morning, we are in Luke's gospel account in chapter 2. 
Okay, Jesus's birth story has just been told where angels and animals and shepherds were the first to witness and wonder at the newborn king. Eight days after he was born, as it was the Jewish covenant from Abram um, that pointed to his numerous descendants, the Messiah being one of them, the king is circumcised, marked with the promise of God. And officially, verse 21 says, named Jesus, the name the angel had given him even before he was conceived. Then in verse 22, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. So this is about 40 days after he was born. And at the temple, they're going to undergo some rituals that both obey and honor their Jewish law and heritage. And while they're there, two different people are going to miraculously recognize this baby as the promised Messiah and will interact with him. So let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, and however best is going to help you um, hear it, do. If you, if you want to grab your Bible and read along with me, if you just want to close your eyes and listen, um, but I'm going to read the, the full account, okay? All right, here we go. Again, I'm in Luke 2, chap, or, um, chapter 2, verse 22. When the time had come, For the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, which says a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. Who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm curious what you're thinking about as you hear the different segments of that story. There are so many beautiful testimonies of a huge and rich variety to Jesus' birth. And I love how God gives honor and respect and dignity to each of the voices that he lets testify about Jesus. I love the brilliant, brilliance of the depth of, of what God is saying and what he's doing and what he's showing in these seemingly simple encounters with seemingly pretty simple people. It, it feels like a little dramatic, but it really leads me to marvel at God, not unlike Simeon and Anna. Okay, can I share with you, which of course I can because you're not there, unfortunately. I wish you were sitting across with me, but I, I just want to share with you some of the things that make me fall in love with God from this passage. I am, I'm really excited about this. Like I said, I, w- I wish you were sitting here next to me, but let's go. Let's do it anyway. All right, so first off, going to the temple. It is so awesome, you guys. It can kind of seem like a means to an end to get them to a place where they're going to meet Simeon and Anna, like right place at the right time, kind of meet cute type of a thing. And yes, they were taking Jesus to be presented to God, which kind of feels expected when your baby is the son of God, but it's really cool. There are three ceremonies happening here at the temple. There's the the purification of Mary and probably Joseph too, maybe. The presentation of the firstborn and the dedication to the Lord's service. So let's break each of these down a little bit because there's more than old-fashioned laws or traditions to keep. It's right here that some of these seemingly weird, old, confusing customs find their point, their meaning. All right, so at first is the purification ceremony. This comes out of Leviticus 12, and there's, it's there in some other places in the law, where God tells Moses that because of the blood involved in childbirth, the mother, and in this case, some scholars think maybe Joseph too, since he was assisting Mary in the birth, there's nobody else there, is considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days after having a son and has to go to the temple for atonement. The rite of purification involved a burnt sacrifice and a sin offering, which you've had to wonder at some point, like what's the deal with killing animals in the Old Testament, right? It's fascinating to me that while Mary and Joseph were paying to get the animal for their atonement, for their sin sacrifice, they were holding baby Jesus in their arms the one who all of history's sin sacrifices were pointing to. 
the one who would be the final sin offering once and for all. One life that pays for another life. From the very beginning, from the first animals that were killed to make clothes for Adam and Eve after that original sin, a picture of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be coming to do as he atones for humanity. And not just buy back some ceremonial cleanliness to get a pass back into the temple, but for true and authentic cleanliness to its fullest extreme, to reconcile all of humanity back to God, completely back to God, and to pay for everything from humanity's first sin all the way to whatever its last one is going to be. This is, this is crazy to me. This is such a beautiful vantage point that we are lucky enough to have after the fact to see this old purification ceremony of blood sacrifices that it points to Jesus and what he's going to do for us. And then there's the presentation of the firstborn. It's another ceremony that's happening here. Um, Exodus 13 let's, uh, says, this is um, chapter 2, says, The law of Moses, or, the, or sorry, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offering of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of people and the animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. It says in verse 15. All right. So the Israelites' rich history comes to play yet again in this ceremony. This ceremony that remembers the last plague of the Exodus um, of the Israelites when they leave Egypt. You know, the one where the angel of death takes all of the firstborn sons as a sacrifice. This plague gets a whole new depth of meaning with God's son, with his firstborn coming to earth to also be taken. Remember in the Exodus story when the Lord gives all of the people who would believe it a way out of the plague of death? If they sacrificed a lamb and smeared its blood over their doorway, the angel of death would accept the lamb's blood instead of theirs and they would be passed over by the angel of death. This is the Passover The image of the firstborn also has nods back to Adam, who was the firstborn of creation. In Romans 5, among other places in the Word, um, Jesus is referred to as the new Adam. Um, In 12 and 15 of Romans 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the whole world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Whereas the original Adam brought sin and death to everyone, the new Adam, the new firstborn of creation, brings life and redemption 
And then there's the dedication um, to the Lord's service. So this concept actually comes from the beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, in which we just studied these together in our last series. Okay, remember how God sees Hannah's misery about being childless, and he gives her a son, Samuel. And out of her gratitude and worship of God, she dedicates her son's life to the service of the Lord by taking him to go live at the temple, serve the priests. Samuel goes on, as we learned, to become a great prophet during those days when Israel is asking for a king, King Saul and then King David. Full circle, right? It's just pretty cool. All of these ceremonies, this is, this is amazing. All of these ceremonies point to King Jesus. I love that. And, and here's something I love even more. These ceremonies not only point forward to him, but Jesus fulfills all of them. Jesus fulfills all of them. It's not just about allowing people to address God anymore, but he opens the way to approach God, to be reconciled and redeemed and reunited with him. And get this. Okay, Jesus even embodies the temple. This is kind of crazy. These ceremonies were at the temple because this place, like the tabernacle before it, signified the place of God's dwelling, his presence, Even the temple itself is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus being the new place of God's dwelling, as Jesus will himself allude to a few chapters later when he references himself as the temple, which is about to be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. (coughs) Sorry. Jesus is the king, the savior and the conqueror who the Israelites and all of humanity needed. They thought that they would get someone to to save their people from other like oppressing groups of people. But this king, the one true king, goes even bigger. He saves them from eternal separation from God. He's the savior. And he defeats the power of death and evil itself conqueror. And he invites all people into his kingdom in all of the world, in all of time. Behold your king. Gosh, there's so much happening in these three introductory verses, and I love it. I love it. I also love the encounters that Simeon and Anna have with this newborn king. So let's look at those. All right, let's look at Simon first. (coughs) Simon's vocation is unknown, which I think I've always assumed up until this time when I was studying it, that um, Simeon was a priest, but it doesn't actually ever say that in the text. What we do know about Simeon is that he was righteous and devout. And when I hear somebody described as righteous, particularly in scripture, I can't help but think of Abram right? Who believed what God was telling him and acted on it. He obeyed it in faith. And it says that God credited that faith to him as righteousness. We read about that in Genesis 15. Faith credited him as righteousness. I think that fits for Simeon too. All right. We are told that 
this is kind of crazy. The Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him. It says revealing and moving. Don't forget that Pentecost has not happened yet. The Holy Spirit has not been fully released on believers. So this is pretty amazing. Simeon's testimony of the king is that of someone who had the, lived in the presence of the Lord and who believed that God was who he says he was and that God would do what he said he'd do. Simeon was part of that faithful remnant, the part that was still looking, looking for the hope of Israel, still expectant for God to deliver them. Because he was looking with faith, he had eyes to see. This is most evident in that song of praise to the Lord that he gives when he sees the baby. And I don't know, what could seem like I don't a little impulsive poem or a, sh- a shout of praise. There is such magnificent meaning in what he says. So let's look at it a little bit. In verse 29, he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He acknowledges that he has fulfilled his call of seeing the Christ. But more than that, he worships God's character And he declares that God is faithful to his word. That God does what he says he is going to do. And don't rush past the end of that sentence. Notice how Simeon describes death. Dismissal from assignment in peace. In the depth of relationship with God, he sees an opportunity to go be with God Reward to Simeon's faithfulness is not just getting to see the Messiah, but death. Yeah, his reward is death to get to go be with God in relationship forever. He goes on to say, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. He recognizes that Jesus is salvation. Jesus is not a picture of it, but he is the display of God's concern for his people. He literally is salvation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, he says, and glory for your people Israel. Simeon describes Jesus as light. By the way, a theme that Luke uses throughout his gospel account is in the other gospel accounts. It was used in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, like in um, Isaiah 60, which I would encourage you to take some time and read. Those first few lines of Isaiah chapter 60 are beautiful as they describe the coming of the Lord like a, like a sunrise. It's, it's beautiful. But notice that the light, is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He does something incredibly crazy and includes people who are not of Jewish lineage in the salvation of Christ. And then he says that Jesus is the glory of the Israelites. Why? Well, the Israelites are special because they have been given the honor of being the people that God used 
to bring about his ministry of reconciliation to the whole world through their lineage of the Christ. Because he knows that God does what he says he will do, Simeon didn't need to wait to see how this all played out with Jesus. Just by seeing this weak, helpless newborn, just by seeing the start of this life, that's enough for him to know what God will do. And while Simeon wondered and delighted and abundantly praised the Lord, he also somewhat abruptly and kind of shockingly also acknowledged the cost of this gift, the cost of salvation. He prophesies, as others do before him too, that Jesus will be a stumbling block, that this king will not unite Israel, but it will actually split it in two. In fact, it'll split all of humanity in two as they respond to this salvation incarnate. It will be sobering and painful Humanity's responses to Jesus will be their responses to God and crushingly will be the falling of many souls. Salvation is here. This is great news. But for those who know they need to be saved and who recognize the Savior, Simeon encountered the one true king And he responded in worship. Sometimes, at least me, I can get caught up in mistakenly thinking that that worship means singing songs or like some old-fashioned grandiose gesture like, like a full body bow or something. Maybe it's just me, but we hear this word worship in church a ton. And sometimes I can wonder, like, what does that even mean? It was really helpful for me to look at Simeon's encounter with meaning Jesus and frame it in, um, in a more full, maybe more authentic or practical, I don't know, picture of what worshiping God could mean. And I wonder which of these is going to stand out to you. If there's one um, that's insightful or compelling or convicting in your walk with, with God at this moment even. Okay, so Simeon, looking back on his encounter, he worshiped God by obeying, first and foremost, obeying what the Holy Spirit had nudged him to do, by expressing gratitude for God's character, by believing that God, in fact, is faithful to his word, to what he says, by having a desire to be together with God, by, by first seeing himself as somebody who needs to be saved and then seeing Jesus as that salvation that he needs. I think he worshiped God by accepting the cost of believing, of following him. To encounter the Lord is to have your soul pierced with truth. And every single person at some point is going to have to decide what to do with Jesus. These different responses that he has in encountering God, the stuff is worship. And then there's Anna. 
who I wish that we got more information about. We know that she's a prophet, so somebody who testifies to the acts of God. We know that she is from the tribe of Asher, which is significant because um, it is in the northern kingdom, which signifies that the Israelites, even in the northern kingdom, are also witnesses to the Messiah and that God's salvation is for his entire people. We're told that she's very old and was either 84 at the time or has been a widow for 84 years, which would make her like over 100. I don't know, depending on the translation that you're looking at. But why is all of that significant? Well, I feel like the next sentence holds the answer. It says that she was, she was completely full-time given over to the ministry in the temple, particularly the ministry of intercession, prayer, fasting, worshiping, purposefully and intentionally and zealously seeking the presence of God for somewhere between 65 and like 85 years. Can you even imagine that? It's amazing. And in a society where women had value from marriage and from children, God gives her value, honor, dignity, a resounding voice that's like cemented in history for all of mankind to see and read about. He gives her these things because she loved him and she was passionately devoted to him, which then gave her the hope for the redemption of Israel. She was looking, and so she had eyes to see. Her response to encountering the baby king of heaven and earth, profuse, seemingly unapologetic, unashamed gratitude towards God. She thanks him right away. Overflowing, it says, to all who, what? To all who were looking, out of bubbling, uncontained, bursting thankfulness, she cannot seem to help but share the good news of the one true king to others. The one true king who is the savior and the conqueror and has been hoped for since Eden. Anna's response of worship was authentic, soul-deep joy and an energetic, intense compassion to see other people know this. To see people not as the background of her life, but to see them as souls. Souls who are hurting who are waiting, who are longing, who are hoping for the saving king, the conqueror. How could she keep this news to herself when she knows the pain and the desperation of waiting and of hope that all humans carry around with them, whether they know it or not? Worship can be overflowing joy at realizing the depths of what is right in front of you. Maybe I should say who is right in front of you. And yeah, worship can be telling others about the truth 
and the hope that we see so that they can see it too. In small group this past week, I I just asked two application questions. Maybe you had to discuss them. Maybe you didn't. Um, but I'll ask them again. My first question was, what response do you have to Simeon and Anna's encounter with Jesus? I hope you had some good thoughts about that. And then my second question was, what response do you have to your encounter with Jesus? Thinking on this, like what your encounters with Jesus have been and what are your responses to him, that's the heart of this Advent season, this time that is leading us up to Christmas. For us to slow down, take time, take energy, take emotion, and engage and think about who Jesus is and what responses that you have to him. Why do we do that? Well, this will determine what Christmas which is the coming of the Messiah, actually means to you and what you're going to do with the king who is a stumbling block. The Christmas tree reminds us of the beauty and the vitality of new life, the new life that we find in the resurrection of Jesus. But before the resurrection, the cross had to come first. The cross, which is also referred to as a tree, is the cost of that new life. The death sacrifice for our purification. The firstborn of God given to renew all of creation. Who is dedicated to the ministry of reconciling it all back to God. I've never really looked at my Christmas tree and thought about the tree of the cross. But it's interesting, to say the least. If Jesus is who he says he is, and who all these witnesses attest to, what are you going to do? Will you pray with me?